Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. My guest today is Tamara Dean, the author of the book The Human-Powered Home, Choosing Muscles Over Motors, which is an in-depth look at the history, advancement, and modern applications of human-powered machines. Having just finished reading this, I can honestly say that I was immediately inspired to start building and using these machines myself. It covers the full range of people-powered devices from treadle sewing machines prisoner-powered treadmills and cotton gins, to bicycles, seesaw water pumps, and pedal generators. In later chapters, Tamara profiles people and organizations that are applying human-powered devices to appropriate technologies that stimulate economies in developing regions, empower people to take on new projects on their own steam, and even just improve your health and fitness. In this interview, Tamara talks about her inspiration to write The Human-Powered Home, and some of the machines she built herself while researching for this book. She also gives advice on some of the most efficient and less efficient tasks to power on your own, some of which are based on her own successes and failures. But rather than giving it all away, I'll turn things now over to Tamara. Tamara, thank you so much for taking the time today. How are you? I'm doing well, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, I've got a whole ton of things that I want to ask you, especially after reading your book. So what do you say we just jump right on in? That sounds great. All right. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you started to get interested in providing for your own needs and consumption. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I have such a varied background. I started out in engineering in college. I wound my way through communications and writing. And then I ended up working in the dot-com business in IT for several years as an engineer and also writing textbooks on computer networking for college students. But meanwhile, um, I was very interested in living more sustainably and living out my environmental principles. Um, my partner, David, is also an engineer and loves to tinker. So we bought this property in southwestern Wisconsin, which is just a gorgeous place. Um, in case you ever feel inspired to visit, I highly recommend it. Um, and we thought that we would try and at building our own house, um, growing our own food, and trying some alternative energy um, techniques. So we first built a straw bale workshop or shed kind of building. 
Um, and we needed some way to mix the plaster for the exterior of the straw bales um, so that they wouldn't rot in the elements. We had started mixing the plaster in a stock tank, basically a trough um, by foot, but this was really taking forever. Um, so we found this old cement mixer um, at an auction and its motor had died. We also found this exercise bike on a neighbor's lawn and she said, yeah, take it, have it for free. And we combined the two with some pulleys and belts, and we created a pedal-powered cement mixer to mix the plaster for our straw bale building. And that was really the beginning of all our experimentation with human-powered devices. Um, you know, a lot of people think that uh, human power will be a great way to not only get things done, but have a good workout. And it often is, but, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for long-term efforts like uh, mixing all your cement uh, for a huge project or washing all your clothes that way. It does have some limitations, um, but we tried many different machines, and um, feel free to ask me about any of those that you found in the book. Excellent. I plan to. Uh, I love that story of your, your mixing machine sort of being the gateway to experimentation and toying around with what else would be possible to power on, on your own efforts. Yeah, and I have to say that that little exercise bike was not designed for a cement mixer. So, you know, right about as soon as our project ended, one of its welded joints gave out. And um, that was the end of the pedal-powered cement mixer. Um, but we did, uh, as I say, experiment with several other things. Yeah, for sure. Now, as you were saying earlier, your fields of study and your work don't seem to line up nicely with the self-sustainable lifestyle. But I'm betting that there are a lot of overlaps in your engineering skills and what you've applied to your property and your lifestyle. Could you talk a little about how those skills transferred over and what you learned for yourself to get where you are now? Yeah. You know, I would say the number one um, benefit that I've had, whether it's by nature or nurture, is just this insatiable curiosity. So I love learning about not only technology, but also the natural world, the arts, um, so I went into um, mechanical and material science engineering as a student in my undergrad years, and I learned about the properties of materials as well as how to put things together um, in the best possible ways, you know, strengths and strains and forces. Um, but I didn't actually apply that in my job later as I worked in, you know, computer networking. Um, that's probably obvious. Um, there aren't too many stresses and strains physically in, in that um, business, but I did maintain curiosity, and I also really enjoyed both through my engineering career, um, and then I later got a master's degree in writing. Um, I enjoyed um, translating concepts that seemed somewhat difficult to, um, at, at a first glance, into re really re understandable ways. So when I came to try to describe the human-powered devices, I was able to combine, you know, my curiosity, my engineering and mechanical abilities, and um, my ability to communicate. Brilliant. Now, you told me how you sort of got started researching human-powered machines. Where were some of the main resources that you looked to and some of the most inspirational um, applications that really got you started building your own? There weren't many references out there, which is why I proposed the book um, to New Society Publishers, and they jumped at it. In fact, they said, we've been wanting to have a book like this for years, but we haven't found anyone to write it. 
So um, there were a few books on bicycles and how bicycles are powered and what you might be able to do with bike machines, but they were very outdated. Um, and I really um, just did a ton of research from the history of human power all the way back to the treadmills that were used for prisoners to um, the people who were employing them today, not only in the U.S., but also in other countries where oftentimes they fill a necessary need. They're not just a novelty as they often are in the U.S. For example, in Guatemala, bicycle-powered machines can mill grain or mix shampoos or smoothies, and oftentimes they form the basis for a small business. In some countries in Africa, um, the merry-go-round is used as a water pump, and this enables a whole village to get clean water where they hadn't been able to have clean water before. So I went from, you know, engineer to engineer, um, just did a lot of interviews and learned both about the science behind human power and the practical application today. And I feel like um, the human-powered home is a compendium of all the greatest hits of what I discovered through my research. Yeah, absolutely. The compilation of all those things really gives a, a fantastic overview of some of the options that are out there and even previews a lot of ways that human-powered machines were used throughout history. Um, on that note, could you explain some of the more common machines that came about maybe in the last century or two or even further back? that were integral to the development of certain areas of the world? Yeah, I would say that naturally the, the bicycle is the one that comes to mind um, because a bicycle is actually the most efficient way of turning muscle power into you know, mechanics. But also the treadled machines of you know the late 19th century and early 20th century before everybody had electricity um, were vital, both in industry and, and at home. Many of us know that our great-grandmothers used a treadle-powered sewing machine, and these were so common, and it was something you would find in every household. Um, but also on the other side, the uh, shops, wood shops, also always had um, treadle-powered scroll saws or um, other kinds of machinery. So they were important for a shop that didn't have the means to use um, a large steam-powered engine, for example, that ran uh, central axis with belts to every different machine. Yeah, I've seen some of the designs from the book, and frankly, I, I want to get my hands on some of those now. I wish they were still in production. Um, but there are resources, like you said, that you can find either for plans to build your own um, or possibly even get antique human-powered machines that still work or maybe just need some minor repairs. Yeah, there definitely are. And it's not like today where you're not going to be able to find um, a way to fix something. You know, because they're mechanical, they are fixable, unlike, you know, maybe a computerized device that will be obsolete and unfixable within 10 or 15 years. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, when you go back to simpler machines, it gives so many more opportunities to not only fix and repair them yourself without having to, you know, rely on either the manufacturer or someone else, which gives you a little bit more sense of personal autonomy. But it also opens up the possibilities for alterations and even improvements that you could make yourself. 
Exactly. That's right. You can customize those machines to whatever you need. And in the case of human power, it might be a matter of adding gears or different size pulleys to adjust to your ability to power them. You know, we all have different levels of strength and endurance. Of course, yeah. I mean, the the obvious application are bikes going uphill or going downhill, and you change based on the resistance. Um, but you could apply that exact same principle to variant loads on, say, an alternator or generator, or um, maybe an increase in, in strain in some other type of machine, like a pump. Right. So tell me a bit about some of your personal successes and failures in experimenting with these human-powered machines. Oh, my gosh. I would say that, um, you know, when I went into researching human-powered machines, I didn't have a sense for how much power was necessary to accomplish a certain task. So the um, pedal-powered cement mixer was very difficult, and, and that kind of made sense. Um, we use a hand-cranked coffee mill at home, and I was pretty shocked at how easy that is. <laughs> you know, I think of that loud whirring noise that the electric coffee mills make, and you think, wow, they're really working hard, but it's, it's almost no effort at all to um, mill your own coffee. One thing we use quite a bit at home is the pedal-powered or hand-cranked grain mill, and that too is quite easy. It takes a little bit of time, but I have to say, after growing my own um, flint corn, which is the kind of corn you use for flour or cornmeal, um, and also getting the wheat berries at the store, I think that freshly milled flour um, makes such a difference in taste in whatever recipe you're using it in. So that's one of my favorites to use at home. One that um, was not so much of a success, and I do mention this in the book, and, and uh, is the... Uh, pedal-powered washing machine. As I said before, that is a big load, uh, not to <laughs> use a pun, but that's a large um, task to try to accomplish through your leg muscles. In between the very easy coffee mill and the very difficult washing machine um, are pedal-powered electrical generators. And um, those are described, there are plans in the book, and there are also references for off-the-shelf um, pedal-powered electrical generators that you can buy. Um, but it's somewhere in between. And the thing to remember about human power is that we often are able to generate more power in the beginning of our effort, whereas after 10 or 15 minutes, our level of output will plateau at a more modest amount. And compared to a lot of other energy sources like gasoline or the electricity that comes out of your wall, um, you know, human power is pretty modest. So I guess I would uh, recommend that people start with the easier machines and see how that feels to them. Speaking of some of those easier machines, I know you mentioned uh, milling your own grain and... I don't know, have you had much experience with like making smoothies or other blender products, things like that? Are there anything that, oh, you yeah. would really, that you would really recommend for people who maybe already have the electronic version but could get comparable or even better results by switching to pedal power or other human-powered versions? Yeah, you mentioned the pedal-powered blender, and that's a device... Um, that I interviewed a few people about in addition to making our own at home and using those for smoothies. It works quite well, but what I hadn't realized before I tried it out and talked with people was that 
it actually might work better than the electrical appliance because in one case, a chef was telling me that as long as he pedal-powered the blender that he used to make sauces and chutneys, for example, he could tell exactly by the resistance to his effort whether the product was ready and finished. Um, and then he would stop before he went any farther. Similarly, um, Frederick Breeden, who makes just soap with a pedal-powered um, blender, and it's quite a, an elaborate machine that's pictured in the book, he said that soap will actually spoil after you mix it too much. So you have to stop right before that turning point. And by pedaling his blender, he was able to feel when it was ready to stop. Whereas with an electrical device, he would have had to keep testing and checking the viscosity. Um, but with his muscles, he could tell when it was ready. And I thought that was a pretty neat um, revelation. I agree. That almost puts an artistic element into using your own power to make things that you wouldn't get from yeah, either electrical appliances or other that don't allow you to interact with the process nearly as much. Exactly. And it really points to a theme I came across through all of my investigation and interviews having to do with pedal-powered devices, which was empowerment. You know, when people um, pedal-power their own lights, for example, um, or in the case of um, a band, they pedal-power their own um, stereo system for um, a concert, they feel empowered, like, okay, we're doing this ourselves. We're managing without the grid. We are self-sufficient, and this is sustainable. Um, and it really gets poignant when they're eating while they're pedaling. So it's a, really a complete cycle in view. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I wanted to talk about one of the other things you mentioned earlier about how someone's input can either plateau or taper off over time. And one of the things that I really appreciated that you included in that book were tables that sort of correlated to different machines and what you could realistically expect an average person to um, put out as far as energy or as far as work done in the beginning of their efforts as they went over a longer period of time. And, you know, even some that were not hard enough to operate that you could kind of do it in an unlimited amount of time, depending on the application. That, right. That apply, that I guess adding sort of a, a realistic expectation aspect to this, I think will really help people to sort of size what they are likely to be able to apply for their own needs and for their own applications and not be sort of disillusioned when maybe they try something out and it's a lot harder than they thought or their, their personal output is, is far below what they expected. Right. In addition, I think it will help people choose the device that they want to power. For instance, um, I wrote part of the book while pedal powering the laptop I was writing on. And laptops really don't take that much uh, electricity. They're pretty low wattage. So uh, you can power a laptop for hours um, with, uh, you know, a bike in a stand or a recumbent bike, exercise bike attached to a motor generator. Um, but if you were to try to do that same hour or two hours um, of typing with a desktop computer or something a little fancier and more high powered, it would be quite difficult. So um, I hope that chart helps people choose what they're going to power with their muscles. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, sort of the wattage output that someone can make. I know a lot of people, including myself, before I read your book, 
are interested in seeing how much electricity they can generate with their efforts. So what would you say are the best ways of doing this and would you recommend other ways of using your efforts for a greater return? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the human body, if you're a reasonably fit, reasonably young person, you can manage to generate at least 75, maybe 100 watts um, for an hour or so. Um, and that's certainly enough to power a laptop or even at that level, a desktop computer. Um, but you have to bear in mind that that's probably still about a penny's worth of electricity from the electric company. So if you're looking to save money, that's not necessarily a great reason to do it. If you just want to feel empowered and um, if you want to be self-sufficient, if you're off-grid, then those are great reasons to take it on. Yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to point out is that, you know, we live in a very fortunate time where electricity especially and, and other forms of power are incredibly cheap. And so if you're just looking at sort of a cost-saving analysis, this doesn't necessarily pan out. But the no, other no. aspects of empowerment and self-reliance are really where the returns start to start, start to come in. I agree. And, you know, there are a lot of pedal-powered machine displays for kids. And I think that's a pretty good use of human power as well. Um, you might go to an energy fair and you'll see a bike-powered electrical generator hooked up to multiple devices that kids can work on. So they might see that pedal-powering an incandescent light bulb is um, takes so much more work than pedal-powering a compact fluorescent, which takes even more work than pedal-powering an LED light bulb. And then if you try to pedal power a hairdryer, for example, it might be impossible for a kid and maybe even an adult to do that. So you begin to understand um, how much you're relying on the grid and how much electricity you're using without even thinking about the work that went into it. Yeah, that was one of my biggest takeaways from this book as well, other than being inspired by all the different plans and applications. Um, I've done research about this in the past for articles that I've written and uh, possibly even a book that I'm thinking of writing on sort of what you can realistically expect to produce within a home, everything from food to energy to heating. And in auditing sort of what appliances and what applications in the home require the most energy, you start to get an idea of what your actions and your comfort levels are really starting to cost. And Understanding these as uh, a measure of human energy output is another great way to sort of measure just exactly how much each of these appliances use. Right. And you might choose after um, exploring this to redesign your home or create more passive solar so that you get light from outdoors instead of having to turn on light bulbs and you have thicker, more better insulated walls on your home so that you're not using the air conditioner as much in the summer. Yeah, that was definitely the impact that it had on me. Now, I wanted to touch on something that you sort of briefly mentioned earlier, and that's sort of the, I know that the scope of what one can do with pedal power or treadle power and others is really astounding. And could you give a few more examples of places and applications in which these forms of machines are much more than just a novelty, but actually a way of life and a major part of the economic activity where they're used? Sure. Um, I did mention the um, 
paddle-powered bike machines in Guatemala. As I said, they can form the basis for small businesses or they can, um, you know, shell nuts. They can grind grain. They can blend smoothies. But in other countries, um, for example, in Nepal, there's a great project that helps people collectively create and store electricity. Um, they have a bike-powered electrical generator in the square, and people from farther out can bring their six-volt motorcycle-type bags to the square. They pedal power enough to charge those six-volt batteries. They take them home, and they will power the LED lights that children need in the evenings to do their homework by. And that uh, prevents the family from having to burn kerosene lamps in their small homes, which could be, you know, uh, air quality hazard. Uh, I think that's a great example of using pedal power um, in an essential way. Also, in some countries in India, um, in Africa and in India, they use um, treadle-powered water pumps um, to get water to their crops. And in this way, they can actually extend their growing season or add a whole nother um, growing season to, you know, improve their bottom line as farmers. Yeah, I can say that that was probably the first application where I was really struck that people are still using these technologies to good effect. When I was doing projects in West Africa, I saw a couple of these human-powered pumps for water, and uh, they're in good use, you know. They, they are quite a lifeline to the communities that they serve. Yeah, and also, as we mentioned before, with the treadle-powered devices from the 19th century in the U.S., they're more, um, you know, fixable by the average person than, say, a tractor that's imported from far away, and you might not be able to find parts, and you might not have the understanding because it's so complex um, to be able to fix it, and then it'll sit there and rust and not bring any value to your farm. So sometimes a simpler kind of pump is, is really an asset. Exactly. I really agree. And that really adds on to the, the empowerment aspect of these types of machines. Now, do you see much innovation these days in the realm of human-powered devices? And if so, what are some of the things that you're excited to see become available? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, when I was um, finishing the book, a lot of people, especially in the U.S. Um, and in Europe, were interested in energy harvesting through just everyday movements. So there were, for example, fibers that were woven into clothing that would harness the energy just as you moved about your day so that it could be stored in a small battery and later perhaps used to um, light something or to power an electronic gadget. Similarly, um, this passive energy harvesting was attempted through boats supplied to the military. Um, the military is very interested in human power because a lot of um, personnel are in places where they're not connected to a grid. They might be out in the middle of nowhere, but they still need their GPS and their communications devices to work. It was found, however, that using the energy harvesting device in the sole of a boot um, made walking much more difficult. After a while, um, the soldier would tire. And it's not surprising because you don't get something for nothing. Um, there's a, you know, certainly a law that we have to follow in physics that says if you expend the energy, you're going to feel like you expend the energy and you can't collect energy without feeling that. Um, so those are the directions in which um, 
human power innovation has been occurring in the U.S. Fantastic. Now, for those of my listeners who want to get started using and even making their own people-powered machines or human-powered machines, what do you think is the most versatile or practical options that are available to them? Well, um, I would begin with, you know, consider boning up on your understanding of how bicycles work. Because as I said before, the bicycle as a machine is the most efficient way of harnessing and using human energy. And once you have that basic understanding, um, you can modify it in many ways to power many different machines. Um, you know, you can connect directly to um, a pulley or a different kind of drive to run a blender, a, you know, to make smoothies. Or you could run some shop equipment or the grain grinder. Um, this is a good place to start. And I, and I have to say that we were um, pretty successful in finding all the parts we needed from salvage stores. And it often didn't cost much at all. And then we would make up for, you know, if we needed additional parts, we would go to the hardware store. But it still was very economical. Wonderful. Now, before I let you go, I want to thank you so much for an inspiring and persuasive chat. But could you also tell our listeners how they can get a copy of your book, The Human Powered Home, and find out more about your other publications? Yeah, um, The Human Powered Home is published by New Society Publishers. And you can go to www.newsociety.com or purchase it wherever you like to purchase books. Um, my other books are, are um, computer networking textbooks, also available wherever you purchase books. And um, I have a website where I've published several essays and stories. Um, the essays often have to do with environmental topics as well as articles. I'm interested in um, clean and abundant water in Wisconsin with all of our farming. That's a consideration right now. Um, my website is www tamaradeen.media. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Tamara. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I hope we can do maybe a follow-up sometime because I'd love to ask you some more questions uh, about the homes that you built and the lifestyle that you live, which really sort of falls in line with the ethics and and the, the ideas that I try to promote through this podcast. That sounds great, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Take care. You too. Now let's quickly jump into this week's weekly tip, which I'd like to call expanding your boundaries. Now this is a topic that comes up a lot in talks between me and Neil Haggerty, one of my good friends and a permaculture and regenerative farm designer here at Abundant Edge. We've observed that one of the most limiting factors that we've noticed from people who come here and try to set up permaculture landscapes and gardens is that they're often intent on growing the same foods that they've grown accustomed to in the U.S. or Europe or wherever else in the world they come from. Vegetables that are staples in a Western diet like carrots, salad greens, tomatoes, and others will certainly grow here in the high tropics of Guatemala, and they even get very excited when they find out about the extended growing season that's available here to us. But none of these food crops are native to the area and frankly need a lot more care and help in this environment than perhaps in northern and temperate climates. That isn't to say that these people are doing anything wrong. In fact, I'll always support anyone who is looking to create their own food security and care for the land in the process. The observations that Neil and I made was that there's an incredible range of local fruits and vegetables 
that while relatively unknown in the Western diet, not only grow much more easily here and are better suited to the climate and soil conditions of the region, but as a result, likely end up with a better nutrient profile for having grown up in their native habitat. I'm talking about plants like malanga, better known as taro root, tree tomatoes, yucca, chia, mora naranjillo berries, amaranth, and so many more. These plants grow abundantly here, even in the rocky soil and steep slopes of the mountains in this terrain, but because of the globalization of food and the homogenization of our diets, even locals have switched to farming crops that are tougher to cultivate, but fetch a better wholesale price in export markets. In this case, when I refer to expanding your boundaries, I'm talking about being open to changing your regular diet when you travel or settle in a new place. While you may be more accustomed to certain foods that grow easily or are simply easier to find in the region where you came from, expanding your comfort zone to include the foods that are indigenous and best suited to the growing environment of where you are now will not only open your world to some incredible cuisine that is likely not industrially farmed and much healthier for you, but could little by little help to change the landscape of food and agriculture back to a culturally and regionally unique experience. If you're interested in hearing more great ideas and observations from Neil, the awesome episode that I recorded with him is number 13 on the Abundant Edge playlist. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services that we offer, from design and consulting to education and workshops. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off on your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again on next week's session.